Good afternoon. Welcome back to another episode, a very long-awaited episode of the Rare Disorder Podcast, episode 39. So before we dive into it, I wanted to talk about some topics, so where I've been the last couple of months, and just some updates regarding the podcast posting schedule and some other important information. So... The past three months have been really busy for me, so I've not been as active in the podcast or on the podcast social medias. Um, I've been in graduation season, super busy preparing to start college in the fall, and just with final exams and all of that school stuff, it's been a pretty busy time. But I'm glad to finally be on summer vacation now and excited to get back into podcasting and getting podcasts out there, staying in touch with you guys and just always being on the radar. So regarding the Rare Disorder podcast, episodes are going to be posted once every two weeks. So on a Saturday every other Saturday, I would say. And social media wise, most active on the Instagram at Rare Disorder Pod, but lots of updates via LinkedIn and Twitter as well. But your main source of information can be the Instagram at Rare Disorder Pod. So Also, I wanted to talk about an experience I recently had last week or the week before last week. I had the opportunity to participate in the YAR Speakers Bureau and it was so much fun. It was basically a public speaking training workshop and I participated in roundtables and was really able to develop and kind of enhance my public speaking skills, which was awesome. So that is that was through the Every Life Foundation. So if you're interested, definitely check that out. I believe they're having another one in July. So yeah, so expect to see lots of frequent updates on the social media and just lots of communication. Um, For the Rare Disorder podcast, I'm super excited to be bringing a lot more guests on, but I am particularly excited about today's episode with a very special guest. So let's not wait and let's get right into it. Now it's time for the best part, today's guest. Today, I have a super special guest on the podcast with me. I'm so excited to have Ben Lanay with me on the Rare Disorder podcast today. Ben has deep knowledge and expertise in the rare disease and healthcare communities, from being a healthcare consultant and investor in numerous companies to being a powerful force in the ALV community. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today, Ben. To start, for my podcast listeners to get to know you, could you please speak a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so thank you so much, uh, Shivani, for inviting me to your wonderful podcast. Uh, I'm Ben. I'm based in uh, Palo Alto, 
California, right next to Stanford University. And uh, I actually grew up in France, but I've been living in the U.S. for uh, three decades. And um, my story with uh, the medical world starts really about 10 years ago uh, when I was diagnosed with a rare neurological disease called uh, X-linked adrenoleucodystrophy, or XLD. Uh, and uh, it started a, a journey of uh, becoming a super patient, an advocate, and uh, getting really involved in uh, medical research. All right, so regarding your road disease journey with ALD, I was just wondering like, how this kind of started out. Like, When did you first experience some symptoms? Um, how were you diagnosed? And I'd be also keen to just learn the process of your like self-driven research. Um, as you kind of took the initiative to begin to dive deep into exploring ALD. Wonderful. So uh, my um, journey really started uh, around 2008, 2009. I'm in my late 40s, sorry, my early 40s. And uh, I had been incredibly uh, outdoorsy and um, athletic. And I started uh, experiencing a sort of decline in performance. Uh, I felt uh, tired and clumsy. I had a feeling that my, uh, I, my legs were made of lead. And so, um, you know, I blamed uh, fatigue, stress, um, old age in my early 40s. And I, uh, I kind of ignored it. Uh, but then uh, I also started having um, uh, issues with my, my ability to walk. You know, my, my gait was labored, uh, spastic. And uh, one day my wife looked at me and said, you know, you're walking strangely. Uh, it's like you're, you have this shuffling gait. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you probably should, should, uh, should be seen. And so I had my first appointment with a, uh, a physician in uh, January 2010 uh, at the Movement Disorder Clinic at Stanford. And that started a two-year diagnostic odyssey uh, because, you know, I'm a late onset for ALD. So ALD is primarily known even among neurologists as a pediatric disease. Mm -hmm. And so when they see someone like me, they will suspect multiple sclerosis, perhaps uh, ALS, perhaps uh, Parkinson's disease mm -hmm. or other, um, you know, a little bit more uncommon conditions, but they will not uh, think of ALD naturally. So it took me two years to get diagnosed. Uh, I went to Stanford, I went to Palo Alto Medical Foundation, which is our community clinic, and then finally went to uh, UCSF in San Francisco where I, I met a neurologist who is a, a very famous diagnostician. And uh, he looked at what everybody else had rolled out. And he had a, an inkling that uh, I had uh, late onset adrenoleucodystrophy. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, basically, uh, so a two-year diagnostic odyssey uh, seems long, but for our, our disease, it's actually quite short. Uh, I've heard people who uh, have been, you know, kind of floating in the medical system mm -hmm. for five, seven years. Uh, I actually uh, were misdiagnosed, were, were told they had MS, uh, were given uh, MS drugs, and eventually to realize that they, they don't have MS, 
but it's not uh, atypical for uh, people to be, um, you know, kind of floating in the medical system for many years before having the proper diagnosis. Yeah, um, definitely. Just from like different patient interviews I've done on the podcast, one thing I really noticed is that a lot of them talk about um, just that thing you're talking about, about like a very long diagnostic odyssey. Um, some people I've talked to have gone through like multiple misdiagnostic processes. Um, and I feel like that's just one of the topics that really comes up a lot in the rare disease community, just waiting those long years and kind of being stuck in this like world of uncertainty because um, they would go from like doctor to doctor and they would just get a lot of misdiagnostics and um, just things like that. So I feel like it's really fortunate that you were able to get this diagnos di diagnosis in two years. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, when you look at the, uh, the genetic prevalence of our disease because it's caused by a single gene mutation and uh, we know there are probably about uh, 10,000 patients in the US, uh, but we know there are thousands of people suffering uh, from symptoms who are undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. And that's mm -hmm. not helpful for them and for, um, you know, uh, really possibilities to have uh, therapeutic interventions mm -hmm. uh, because those people are not tracked, they're not monitored. Uh, their stories do not go into understanding the natural history of the disease. Mm -hmm. uh, they cannot be enrolled as uh, patients in uh, studies. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, eventually uh, we hope that uh, uh, newborn screening, which uh, we've been advocating for and successfully, um, you know, deploying in, uh, in a number of uh, states, uh, will help us to, to really... Um, attract everybody who has our disease mm -hmm. and of course uh, be able to uh, learn uh, you know more about the, the phenotypes of the disease mm -hmm. and uh, and enroll these people as uh, subjects in clinical trials yeah definitely and then just kind of um, knowing that early on in your life so you can like take the necessary next steps and kind of like explore those different treatment options or just um, Kind of knowing early on, I feel like it's just a really important part in the rare disease community. Yes. Um, all right. So just kind of going off of like what I was talking about, like talking about patients who um, are struggling to kind of understand what they're going through um, through podcasting and also just various community reach outs I've done. I've spoken with numerous patients. Um, and one of the most common topics is really struggling to understand like what they're going through, like why is this is happening to me, um, or just really not knowing where to start and kind of working towards understanding their disease and what to expect in the near future. So I was wondering if there's like any advice that you have for these patients, whether that's regarding kind of understanding what they're going through or kind of taking that next step to kind of learn more about their disease or like create a change. Um, in the space, in the rare disease community, or also in the space of their specific disease? Yeah, so there, there is a lot to say here. So I think when you get, uh, you're just diagnosed, I mean, there are, you know, practical things that you, you grapple with, as well as um, uh, emotional things. So uh, in terms of, you know, practical things, I think uh, understanding the disease, you know, people will go on uh, Wikipedia, but I think, you know, uh, 
really um, uh, understanding the disease, uh, its origin, um, its um, its uh, presentation, and the prognosis. You know where uh, how it may evolve, and knowing of course that there are um, you know d different different shades and colors uh, in how your personal uh, profile uh, will impact that. But I think then uh, it's a genetic disease, so people grapple with, you know, uh, who else in the family has it, is a carrier, so getting relatives uh, tested, you know, and the, the emotional impact it has on, on those people. And then uh, really trying to assemble a, a good care team. So, you know, one thing that I, where I, I really uh, coach and mentor people is, you know, who is... Uh, helping you pedal your canoe, uh, you know, for us, it's a neurologist, it's an endocrinologist, um, it could be also a urologist and a uh, physical medicine and rehab doctor, uh, but you need to have really a, a rock-solid care team who's going to help you navigate this, uh, you know, for many years to come. And I think, you know, the emotional impact is, uh, is uh, very profound, uh, you know, I, because uh, many men get diagnosed when they're in their 20s or 30s. You know, my diagnosis was a little bit later, uh, but it's it's a uh, you know it, it's a hairpin turn in your life, and you're basically you know I have all these dreams about uh, you know having a family, uh, about professional success, mm -hmm. and suddenly you know I have this devastating diagnosis. Uh, it's, I, I'm looking at, you know, years of inexorable decline in front of me and reduced mobility and reduced autonomy and, um, you know, and declining health. Mm -hmm. And so people get shaken to the core. And so my, my message has been to, um, to really, uh, not, uh, fall into despondency, uh, but to, uh, to realize, you know, a couple of things first is that you can still have a very vibrant life with this disease. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, you know, you need to invest yourself in understanding the disease, taking care of yourself, staying fit through, uh, you know, training and uh, exercise and that you can, um, you can really reinvent yourself to, uh, to be, um, you know, a great person living with this disease, but, you know, focused on, on new things mm -hmm. that are uh, just incredibly, um, um, you know, inspiring, interesting, and fulfilling in themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great advice. I feel like just a really important part of um, the diagnosis um, and just navigating your life with your new diagnosis, I feel like um, a message I really try to put out there is like you are not like your diagnosis like you have other parts of your life like your family and like your hobbies um, and I feel like sometimes people just let it consume them and kind of having their life revolve around it but I feel like it's always also really important to look at the other parts like your family and friends um, and just kind of getting that holistic view and kind of not letting it define you because I know that is just something a lot of patients struggle with and I feel like that's a really important message to kind of put out there um, especially in the rare disease community when um, you may not like know someone else with your disease just because 
Um, rare diseases can be really isolating because patients are very dispersed just because of the very small numbers. So I feel like just kind of stepping outside of that box and immersing yourself in hobbies and finding great support systems along the way really helps. Yeah, and the importance of connection, of course. So, um, you know, really uh, looking up uh, people uh, in the community who, who have the disease or, you know, care for someone with a disease. Um, but they, there is incredible solidarity and solace and insight in connecting with others with the disease, uh, learning about their stories, their journeys, uh, and then, you know, how they're coping. Mm -hmm. And if they have uh, tips on how to, uh, to, to operate uh, better. And I think, you know, um, obviously, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, dealing with it uh, psychologically, but also, um, you know, activities, exercise, uh, general uh, healthiness, you know, uh, diet, uh, food, um, coping with stress. And, um, and I think also, um, you know, uh, gathering as a community, uh, you know, either uh, virtually or in person when, when we'll be able to, uh, because there is, uh, you know, amazing support and warmth in that. Yeah, and I feel like it's a, just a really positive thing that um, nowadays, like, social media is so active. I feel like just forming these connections can really happen across social media, um, especially since, like, you can create connections across the world and things. And I feel like within just the community of rare diseases, there's just these multiple different communities for every single rare disease, which is really, like, mind-blowing to me. But... I feel like um, a really positive thing that is in today's world is social media and just us being able to connect, um, have these different like conferences, panels, um, roundtable sessions, things like that, where we can learn from one another um, and kind of learn about each other's um, journey and like the different situations that people have gone through. And I feel like just having the support system, you feel like you have someone who has kind of gone through the same things as you and um, whether that's like reaching out to them for advice or like support during a tough time, I feel like it's really um, like social media is just a really positive thing, especially in this community. Yeah, yeah, we just had so, uh, you know, after my diagnosis, I, uh, I, uh, I co-founded a, um, uh, a collective a foundation uh, for ALD, ALD Connect, and um, you know, it has grown. We had our uh, annual meeting last November, and uh, we had about 400 attendees online. And of course, you get um, not only an update on uh, all the research on the disease, the, the um, you know, the clinical studies that are being planned, uh, but also uh, a lot of testimonials from patients and those are uh, very informative and inspiring. And, uh, and then people, you know, continue the, the nurture the bones online. Mm -hmm. And one example, you know, sometimes it's, it's, uh, it's very hard, very tough. Uh, we had a, a young man who uh, died of the cerebral uh, phenotype of the disease last week. And, uh, you know, there was a process of, of uh, um, you know, really grieving 
uh, his death um, through our little, uh, very tight-knit community. And there were lots of stories that came out and, uh, and it felt uh, wonderful to be able to honor him in that way and to come together as a community around this tragic event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm very sorry to hear that, but um, I feel like just how you guys kind of came together after and came together to honor him, I feel like that just really, um, it's really great to have those people supporting you around you and um, during those like tragic events. Um, all right, so just kind of going back to um, ALD, so um, it affects the legs and kind of like the ability to walk, as you said, like you your legs felt like lead that day. Um, so I was wondering if you could like share some things that you do to combat ALD in your daily routine, such as like exercise regimen or just staying outdoors, um, just some things you do to help combat that every day. Yeah, so ALD in, uh, in men is really, um, you know, a, a, a disease of the kind of below the waist, the, the lower limbs. Um, and so, um, you know, one of the, the primary problems is, uh, is around a uh, stiff and spastic gait. I mean, it's basically a progressive spinal cord disease, you know, with axonal degeneration in the, the long tracts of the spine, like the corticospinal tract. And so you have a, a deficit uh, of the, uh, you know, conduction, nerve conduction um, going up from the, the lower limbs to the brain and then going down from the brain to the lower limbs. So both, you know, perception, sensation, as well as uh, uh, command and control. And so, um, so really, uh, you know, what you don't want is, uh, is to say, you know, I'm, I'm being robbed of my, my ability to walk, so I'm going to stop moving. I'm going to sit down because, you know, that's, uh, that's what's most comfortable, safest. Mm -hmm. You have to keep moving every day if you can. And uh, so for me, you know, I used to do uh, sports uh, that are now completely off limits to me. I was a skier. I was a backpacker, a mountaineer. I played uh, squash and tennis. Uh, I did a lot of road cycling. Uh, in our beautiful San Francisco Peninsula. And so all of those are uh, either impossible or too risky for me now. And so uh, I've had to kind of reinvent myself in terms of my fitness regimen. And uh, I swim a lot. I still do some, uh, some walking with my dog using two canes. Uh, I have a recumbent bicycle. And I do a lot of Pilates and physical therapy. But basically, you know, I try to, uh, to move every day. I'm very focused on core strength, uh, flexibility, uh, movement control. And, uh, and I think, honestly, that's what's kept me out of the wheelchair. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a way to maintain strength and function and to uh, avoid the downward spiral of uh, not moving, you know, feeling very atrophied, uh, even more spastic. And, uh, you know, taking uh, a lot of drugs against spasticity, which makes you drowsy and is really bad news. Mm -hmm. So would you say like these exercises and like different activities like Pilates and um, just walking, would you say it has helped you kind of like build back your strength um, in your legs? 
Yeah, I would say Pilates is the, the best kept secret for people with any kind of neurological condition. I'm, I'm really sad that it's not uh, used more widely. Uh, you know, it is um, completely uh, free of danger because you're on the reformer, so there is no risk of fall. And uh, it is, you know, a very demanding exercise, but you work with uh, mostly with cables and pulleys. Uh, it's a whole body exercise, uh, but really helps with core strength, you know, mm -hmm. around the abdominal area, which, by the way, is going to keep you stable, you know, and, and uh, prevent sweat and falls. And, um, and it's also um, excellent for movement control. So, and flexibility, it's really, it stretches you and, uh, and helps with, uh, you know, energy during the day, uh, good sleep at night, and just, um, you know, staying um, uh, upright, strong, and fit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like that advice of, like, kind of keep moving is just a really great piece of advice, just because you're kind of taking um, the natural route to kind of bring back your strength and like instead of turning to like the drugs that might be prescribed for it um I feel like that is just a really great way especially since it's natural and you're not turning to like medication or things like that yes I think the you know a lot of people um take a lot of drugs feel like they have to take a lot of drugs and uh you know and and sometimes uh, you have to take drugs um you know, many of us also, uh, due to ALD, have uh, chronic adrenal insufficiency. Mm -hmm. So uh, I myself have been on, uh, uh, you know, daily steroids supplementation for the past four years. And basically, you know, I have now to take them uh, to, uh, to, to continue living. It's almost like, you know, somebody who has, um, you know, uh, cardiovascular risk takes uh, Lipitor yeah. every day. Mm -hmm. So I have to. But, uh, you know, it's, it's best to avoid taking a lot of drugs yeah. that interact with each other mm -hmm. and uh, inevitably have uh, toxic side effects. Yeah, and just, like, creating, like, I feel like the required ones, like, definitely take, just not, like, additional, um, because those can, like, create, like, imbalances in the body and just, like, toxic side effects, as you said. Indeed. Um, all right, so you've mentioned that your life has kind of blossomed since diagnosis. Um, I was wondering if you could share a bit more on this, like whether that, in what ways it has blossomed, in what like areas, um, whether that is like the part about creating your own organization or like just meeting new people, like the different ways that it has kind of blossomed. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, obviously around my, you know, my interests, but mostly around uh, people and friendships and, uh, and community. So, um, you know, I was, uh, I was uh, not um, in the healthcare world uh, before, I had no reason to be. I was in technology, uh, hardware, software, uh, uh, solar energy, and, um, and suddenly found myself having to learn uh, about uh, physiology, about uh, health and, and disease, about uh, medical research, and um, funded uh, a number of labs, uh, you know, became um, uh, 
basically uh, a supporter of uh, a number of uh, principal investigators mm-hmm. and clinicians and um, you know really uh, made a sort of kind of a slow pivot into that world mm-hmm. and so uh, you know helped to start the foundation run the foundation um, and uh, you know became uh, very accustomed to the whale so biotech companies operate uh, what what their uh, what their motivation is, um, you know, operationally, uh, what they need to be successful, and eventually became a uh, a consultant uh, to the biotech world, uh, and also the community, you know, meeting um, fellow patients, their families. I mean, some of my uh, my best friends now are people from the community mm-hmm. who have shown an exemplary. Uh, fortitude and courage in uh, dealing with this disease mm-hmm. and um, and those people are you know my uh, my lifeblood they've inspired me uh, in, in, uh, in just amazing ways and also um, you know I've made uh, friends in the uh, uh, in the world of academic research uh, at a, you know on an international basis and um, and in industry uh, people who are, uh, you know, really invested in developing drugs for our disease and other neurological diseases. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually, uh, because of my interest, you know, I uh, joined the, uh, the board of the American Brain Foundation. I'm actually now vice chair, and that's the premier foundation in the U.S. looking at neurological disease mm-hmm. and uh, trying to find a, a sort of you know, convergence between those different conditions like, you know, ALS, epilepsy, dementia, and finding, you know, kind of the really the deep underlying processes of neural degeneration and how we can uh, address them. Yeah, so just kind of going off of that, like, um, as you said, you're like deeply involved with these biotech companies and like various like startups. Um, I'd love to hear like more on like what it's like to work with these companies, get them interested in your disease, and then also just like manage the many expectations while working between like these numerous companies, um, and just the overall like experience. Yeah. So from the the foundation angle, you know, when I started the foundation uh, with with uh, the the neuros in twenty thirteen. Uh, you know, they were, uh, there was one company uh, called Bluebird Bio working on our disease, and now we have uh, almost 10. And so we've had to attract interest from biotechs, you know, and, and we've done it, uh, you know, actually at, we're meeting them at many conferences uh, and at, in different, uh, you know, venues and forums. And basically biotech companies will ask the same questions because, you know, they, they are profit-driven, Mm-hmm. They are going to uh, to have to invest a lot of money in uh, in doing the preclinical research and then the clinical studies, and they want to know if there's going to be um, you know a return on investment for their efforts, and I totally respect that, and so they ask you know what is the prevalence, how many of 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 you uh, out there would be interested in our drug, uh, how hungry are you for a treatment. You know how bad is the burden of disease and are you really interested in, in a, a treatment either disease modifying therapy or a curative treatment 
And then they are saying, you know, are you organized? Can we find you easily? Or do you have a sort of clinical trial readiness uh, network? And uh, is the natural history understood well? Because, you know, uh, many of these, the clinical studies are long. Uh, obviously, you know, many of them will be uh, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized. But in some cases, you want to compare, you know, the patient on the drug to the natural history of the disease. And then uh, finally, they say, you know, uh, you know, can you, can you potentially, can you help us get uh, funding uh, to run a, a clinical study or at least vouch to investors for us? Mm -hmm. And so these are all the questions. And I think you, you need to have a sort of toolkit to show that you are ready to engage with a biotech company and accelerate their, their, uh, their development and help them uh, be successful. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think that's, uh, that's what's worked for us. And now we have 10 companies uh, either uh, in studies or, or uh, planning studies for our disease, you know, for different, uh, different uh, segments of the population. But it's, uh, it's very hopeful. And then on top of that, personally, I joined an angel investment group in Palo Alto and, uh, and we're, you know, screening companies and qualifying companies uh, that apply for early stage funding. And my, my heart is in neurology, uh, really two things. So one, I, I love assistive devices for movement disorders. So anything that can help you in your daily life, uh, that can help you walk and move better and more safely, and um, also neurology. So uh, my wife and I invested in, uh, um, you know, about 15 companies in all, uh, several in the movement disorder space and several doing uh, interventional therapies for neurodegeneration. Yeah, so that's really interesting that you like invest in these companies. Um, I was wondering if you like have an example of something you can share for like a company of assistive devices that you have invested in. Yeah, so for, um, you know, for uh, an assistive device, uh, I think a great example is Cyanic. Uh, it's spelled C-I-O-N-I-C. -E, and it's a, a neural stimulation device to help people with uh, walking. And so it's a, it's a garment, it's a piece of fabric, you know, it's a sleeve that you wear around your leg. And it has 24 uh, electrodes that both uh, do sensing and functional electrical stimulation. And amazingly, it works. Uh, it basically, you know, senses what, how you walk and your deficits. You know, do you have foot drop? Do you have, uh, you know, poor hip flexion, a shuffling gait, a freezing of gait, you know, or any kind of, uh, you know, other uh, abnormality. And then it, it knows what muscles to innervate. Uh, you know, and literally you can get uh, uh, immediate improvement in terms of, uh, you know, your, your, uh, your heel strike, your swing, uh, your stride, you get more speed, more dynamic balance, more confidence. And uh, ultimately the hope is that uh, it's going to also retrain your neural pathways. So it will become, you know, Part of you, and so it's it's uh, it's targeted at people who are recovering from stroke, uh, people who have multiple sclerosis, 
for people suffering from um, uh, progressive spinal cord disease, you know, a number of ataxias and palsies. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a, it's a cool product, you know, it's a, it's a cool physical product backed by, of course, a lot of, you know, really sound firmware mm -hmm. and uh, AI algorithms in the back end that adapt to you and learn from you and basically, uh, you know, personalize the stimulation to what you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So would you say um, a lot of patients with like ALD are using the product? So people mostly use, uh, you know, things like canes and walkers oh. and eventually uh, smart wheelchairs. Uh, but I know uh, people have experimented with uh, functional electrical stimulation. You know, there are um, products like the Bioness or Walkade already on the market mm -hmm. that are, um, you know, a little bit more simple, but help with things like foot drop. And so they're essentially... Uh, you know, an alternative to AFOs, uh, ankle foot orthotics, like braces, or um, and those are, I think, have a, a lot of potential. So Cynic is kind of the next generation of that. Oh, okay. Uh, but I think these are, are going to get great adoption. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, just like working with these different companies that you kind of previously mentioned, um, I was wondering, like, among all these companies, since they're interested in, like, ALD, um, are they, like, working towards, like, similar goals and objectives or, like, different things? Yeah, so there are many companies, and, you know, uh, to, to name a few, so we still have Bluebird Bio working on the, uh, the pediatric form of our disease with, a, 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 you know, potentially life-saving gene therapy uh, we, for the adults, uh, we have um, companies like Autobahn Therapeutics, uh, Paxil, Swan Bio. And so um, those companies, yeah, they, they, there is a lot of commonality. You know, they're trying to understand uh, the, the really kind of the underlying pathology of the disease, the natural history. And, and they're, the studies they're planning, you know, their human trials are structured uh, in very similar ways. So the, the protocols look very similar their drugs have different uh, mechanisms of action. And so, uh, you know, some are um, really looking at, you know, kind of slowing down the progression of the symptoms or stopping the progression, maybe reversing a little bit. Uh, others are looking at, you know, more a, uh, an attempt to, to cure the underlying pathology of the disease. Mm -hmm. uh, but they, they're, um, you know, they're all planning uh, for our disease, you know, two-year studies because we're considered a uh, neuromuscular, neuroskeletal disease. Uh, and uh, they are, um, you know, really competing to attract uh, patients into their studies and mm -hmm. be the, the first ones to get approval and then go to market. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. So that's very interesting to hear. Um, all right, so just kind of switching gears. So you kind of took, this upon yourself to create ALD Connect and just like with this experience you have gained like a lot of insights and knowledge regarding kind of starting up the own organization um and just kind of taking this like a lot of my listeners in the past have previously inquired with me on advice from starting up like a rare disease organization or a movement for their rare disease of some sort 
And just like of by co-founding like ALD Connect and as also a mentor for the Rare as One project at Chan Zuckerberg, you have extensive experience with coaching and kind of guiding individuals through this process and the various steps involved in kind of starting up their own organization. Um, so I was wondering if there are like some key pieces of advice that you would share with my listeners if they're kind of seeking out this path of kind of taking their next step in their advocacy journey to create their own organization or their own movement or just their own project? Yeah, so I, I would say, you know, the, the first thing is when you, you get diagnosed or, you know, your, your relative gets diagnosed, um, I think you have to look at, uh, you know, do I want to uh, go through the, uh, the uh, intense effort to create my own organization or should I join an existing one, you know, and so I think the question here is, you know, you have to, to look up who's out there already uh, doing work in the space and do you uh, agree with their messaging, with their positioning, you know, are they trying to focus on family assistance, uh, community, or really uh, breakthrough research? Is there anything missing? And then, you know, do you share the, the same uh, commitments and values. But I would say that if, if you can join an organization and be additive to what they're doing, you should do that because there is no, no need to, uh, you know, fragment the community and try to uh, reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. But in many cases, you know, people say, well, you know, uh, either, you know, I, I, it's a very rare disease and there is really no one at the forefront of both advocacy and research or in my case in 2013 i looked at the landscape in the us and we had a a number of wonderful family-led groups but they were you know very small and they were focused on you know very tactical uh family assistance um and and you know very limited fundraising so there was clearly room for a uh, a nationwide umbrella organization which Mm -hmm is what ALD Connect uh, became. So um, based on that experience of how we grew ALD Connect, uh, I was approached by the Chen Zuckerberg Initiative uh, to become a a mentor to, um, you know, frankly, parents with kids uh, just diagnosed with a super rare uh, condition. And they, um, they hear the call to start an organization and and inevitably, they have questions on, on how you go about this. And so how do you, uh, you know, become a 501c3? Uh, how do you create a board of directors and a scientific advisory board? How do you hold an annual meeting? How do you identify priorities? Uh, and how do you um, uh, really um, uh, identify good uh, research candidates? And, uh, and make sure that you have the infrastructure in place, you know, registry, uh, biomarker study, natural history, and uh, a sort of platform to, to share, to collaborate, uh, to make sure that uh, everybody is aligned to, uh, to really with the ultimate purpose of defeating the disease. And so I've, I've been helping uh, people do that. Uh, I love it uh, because, you know, it's... Um, it's a great way to accelerate their own uh, learning curve and, and, and uh, you know, make sure that they get results more quickly. And they are wonderful people who are doing it uh, because they have huge hearts 
and feel uh, you know a huge uh, calling to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, I feel like one of the most important parts of like kind of having um, an organization is just I feel like the collaboration between the different people is really important. Like just the advocates and then who are like advocating for like the policy and then the ones who are spreading awareness. And then also I feel like the researchers and like scientists who are working to kind of create a cure or treatment for that disease. And I feel like when these like three um, three groups of people come together, it's like a really successful like organization because you're getting like the science side, the awareness side, and then also the like policy aspect of it. Yeah, the policy aspect has been very important and it's not only, um, uh, you know, we've lobbied for newborn screening so that uh, our disease, you know, which can be um, screened with a simple blood test mm-hmm. is uh, part of the uh, uniform screening panel. And the state of New York was the first one to implement that about uh, seven, eight years ago. And now we have uh, more than 50% of uh, U.S. newborns are screened for ALD. And we also want the uh, FDA to know more about our disease. Uh, we had a uh, listening session last year, late last year, where we had 12 patients, including myself, and also uh, the widow of a patient who had just passed away, who presented to the FDA to really, uh, you know, talk more about the burden of disease mm-hmm. and how it's a, uh, it's really a, uh, a devastating disease that um, you know has a huge impact on the uh, on the quality of life on uh, on autonomy on uh, you know of course um, professional function and the family and that uh, we we want them to uh, to pay attention to it to uh, to be you know invested in treatments and uh, you know give a breakthrough and orphan drug designation uh, to as many of them as possible mm-hmm. Yeah, like I recently learned about like the um, newborn screening acts and things like that. And I find it very interesting just like um, like the process. It's very simple, like just to screen at birth. And then that kind of gives you the results you want. So you know where to go from there. Um, so I think it's a very like innovative strategy. Um, and I just learned about it like a couple months back. So I was really like interested in it. So just wanted to share. Yeah, and it, you know... Uh... Interestingly, you know, for newborn screening, we, we had a fight uh, in every state because states naturally ask, you know, is it actionable? You know, if people get uh, screened positive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what, what can be done about it? So we had to educate, um, you know, both the uh, health and human services agency of each state, as well as the legislature mm-hmm. that's going to, uh, you know, uh, earmark funds, uh, appropriate funds for the program. Uh, that yes, it is actually uh, you know very important to monitor people who have this gene mutation mm-hmm. that it can be life saving. Uh, people ask, you know, can we do the test uh, in state uh, instead of you know um, outsourcing it to another state? Mm-hmm. And uh, and they ask, um, you know, of course, uh, will there be uh, false positives, false negatives, and uh, is there a will there be a protocol? in place to accompany these families in, uh, you know, understanding uh, what a positive result means 
and what is the standard of care uh, for these kids once they get uh, they get identified. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is like true right now, but I feel like it may be something that's like debated on between families. Like, do I really want to know that um, like my child is positive, like for some disease at birth? I feel like that might be something that arises, but I'm not sure if that's like right now. But I just like I was just thinking about that. And thought yeah, that. there are there are unbelievable stories. So I've heard stories, you know, in New York and Texas and the state of Washington and California of a little newborn being screened positive and suddenly uh, 12 family members get tested and find out that they're positive too. And they didn't know, you know, they're mm-hmm. too young or they, they, they were, uh, you know, I mean, typically males are more deeply affected than females, mm-hmm. but, you know, it creates, a, you know, this absolutely this tsunami in a family uh, that suddenly, you know, people discover that the, the disease is rampant in the family, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, uh, re- older relatives will, you know, have, are not walking or, you know, uh, struggling to walk. Of course, you know, mm-hmm. they don't have MS, they have ALD. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, other relatives who died of, you know, kind of unknown, mm-hmm. uh, for unknown reasons, they died of ALD. Mm-hmm. And then it has, you know, a profound impact in terms of, you know, what the future holds, and, uh, of course, uh, reproductive choices, because young women who are about to start families mm-hmm. discovered that they, they are, uh, you know, carriers for the, this mutation, yeah. and that has, of course, a profound impact on, the, you know, what they need to, to think about in terms of having children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, just, like, rethinking some decisions, and then... I feel like in some situations, situations, it can really like hit them and kind of like cause them to like, be like, what do we do now? But I feel like just having those like, kind of like protocols or like family care plans in place will really help like navigate that um, after maybe if they find out like it runs in their family or something like that. Um, all right. So just kind of as we close out now, I just wanted to ask if there's like anything else that you would like to share today. Um, just for context, my audience is mainly comprised of rare disease patients, rare disease organization leaders, and then also just some medical experts. Um, so just keeping that in mind. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll end on a more philosophical note, but I think the, um, the most important thing is to, uh, to realize that you, you are in a sort of new person. Uh, as you said very wisely, she many earlier, you know, we are living with a disease, but we're not the disease. We are more than the disease. Mm-hmm. And so you have to reconcile those two, those two uh, dynamics. And, um, but uh, you cannot, uh, you know, be stuck in grieving the person you were. Uh, you have to look at kind of the new self and say, you know, I'm a person living with this disease and that has profoundly changed me. But now I have, you know, new new friendships, new horizons, new interests, and a new way of living. And I think that can be, you know, a model for others uh, and, uh, and a um, really uh, an important way to, uh, to kind of go on your journey of self-discovery. Uh, I myself also uh, um, learned by example, you know, read a lot of books, uh, biography of uh, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, 
who was uh, paralyzed mm -hmm. at age 42 and uh, ended up, you know, surmounting that, that horrible um, condition to win the presidency uh, and, of course, have a, a hugely important role in history mm -hmm. during the Great Depression and World War II. Uh, there are also biographies of uh, Robert F. Murphy, uh, Reynolds Price, you know, people who had spinal cord uh, tumors and, um, and ended up becoming paraplegic and tetraplegic, but actually having some of the best years, productive years of their lives uh, after their diagnosis. And so these are incredibly informative, inspiring, and they point the way to what we need to be, which is to be, uh, to be happy, uh, to be strong, uh, to look to the future and, uh, and be at peace uh, with who we've become, you know, as a whole self, a person of uh, considerable, you know, strength and integrity and resolve and, um, you know, just uh, full, full uh, people uh, still living with this disease. Yeah, that's, ama that's amazing advice. Um, I just want to thank you so much, Ben, for... Um, being a guest on my podcast today and just like sharing all these wonderful insights, perspectives, and also motivational messages. I feel like the message you really put out there is so like important and a great way to look at things, um, especially just coming straight from a warrior of ALD and just your expertise like in the healthcare and rare disease spaces. Um, so it was a really pleasure to speak with you today, and I really thank you and um, also applaud you for all your work in the space and that you're doing to help advance treatment and awareness for ALD. Thank you so much for hosting me, uh, Shivani. I very much appreciate it. <laughs>